Good morning, Restoration. I hope you're doing well today. Uh, as you can tell, I'm in a different location. I'm at Mount Zion Lutheran Church. Uh, they've been super gracious in allowing me to record here. Uh, it's also a lot easier to record here, as you might imagine, than from my living room. Uh, my kids appreciate me not telling them to be absolutely quiet as, as Daddy's recording his sermon. Uh, so uh, many thanks to the Zion congregation who've allowed me to, to preach from here. Uh, so one of my favorite things to learn about uh, from the early church is just how quickly they grew in those first few days. Uh, so if you were to open up the book of Acts, you would be able to read right there that in their first few days in which the church was gathering, they, they were only numbering about 120 believers. Like that's not actually very many people, right? Uh, Dr. Philip Jenkins, he is uh, an author uh, and writer over at the Pathios blog. And he gathers a bunch of historical research to show just how quickly this movement grew. Uh, so in the year AD 100, it had grown to include about 10,000 believers throughout the, the world, uh, throughout the Mediterranean world. Well, then if you were to fast forward 50 years to the year AD uh, 150, the church had quadrupled. So it was about 40,000 people. Like that's a pretty quick amount of growth, right? Well, then if you were to fast forward another 50 years, so the year 200, well, by that point, the church, the church had multiplied by more than six and had grown to be about 250,000 people around the world. So within 200 years, it went from 120 to 250,000. Like, that's a pretty cool, uh, quick growth, right? So that begs the question, like, why? Why in the world did it grow so quick? You know, what in the world caused it to grow so quick? Well, it wasn't because of the people who had joined uh, this movement. No, in fact, it had no uh, people of, of high reputation or people of means who had joined this movement, uh, with a few exceptions. Uh, because the fact of the matter is, is that when you joined this movement, usually you were shunned by other people in your community. Uh, they held you in suspicion. They mocked you. You, know, you wouldn't have access to the same kind of jobs or clients that you would have had before. Because the fact of the matter is that the vast majority of the people who were a part of this movement, they were slaves. They were servants. They were untouchables. They were people who were considered second-class citizens. And these were people who also didn't have access to, to buildings. Uh, usually their gatherings were in one another's homes. And in some cases, they would even avoid gathering in large numbers so as not to cause a stir or a commotion in the communities that they were in. But perhaps the most particular, par <laughs> excuse me, perhaps the most particular, peculiar aspect of this novel religion was its centerpiece. The fact that their founder was a backwoods Jewish teacher who was crucified by the Romans. Like this is an embarrassing part of the story, right? This isn't an origin story that you would be really excited to tell your friends about. So again, why in the world did it grow? Why in the world did this religion take off so quickly? Well, we'll come back to this in a minute. So if you've been tracking with us for the past few weeks, you know that we've been preaching through the book of 1 Peter, and we've been calling this series A Hope for the Dispersion. This is a letter that the Apostle Peter wrote while imprisoned in Rome to a scattered and dispersed people on the outskirts of the Roman Empire far, far away. In fact, a lot of scholars believe that he probably didn't even know who these people were, but his heart went out for them, and he wanted to remind them who they were in Christ and what the rich inheritance was that they had access to as followers of Christ. 
So uh, Father Scott, several weeks ago, he, he showed us Peter's words and, and, and how they apply to us, that though that we are also a dispersed people, we belong to the household of God, and we too are recipients of that rich inheritance. And then after that, we talked about the fact that we're exiles living in a foreign land and how we ought to respectfully live under, those, uh, under the authorities in which God has placed us under. And then last week, we looked at the fact that Peter calls us a royal priesthood, and that as uh, baptized believers into the body of Christ, we are a royal priesthood. So then, how do we love and pray and serve the neighbors that God has placed around us? So each one of these have been, have been good words to hear, but also challenging things to hear as well. Uh, so for uh, a couple days ago, I saw this video of uh, some track runners. Uh, it, was, it was a meet, and they were running this relay race. You know, one of those races in which you pass, you know, there's four of you on a team and you're passing a baton uh, between your teammates. Well, as there was a sad moment that emerged in this, uh, in the video that I was watching, uh, because this one team had the lead. But as uh, the lead passed the baton to the guy behind him, the guy who took the baton, he actually tripped a little bit. Now, thankfully, he stayed in his lane, so he wasn't disqualified. But because he tripped, and he tripped significantly, he lost the lead that his teammate had gained for him. And so you saw all the other runners pass him and pass him by a lot. Well, then something amazing happened that was super, super cool. And you're watching this video, and all of a sudden, his legs just turn into this blur. And like a bolt of lightning, he runs faster and faster and faster, and he catches up to the rest of the runners. And not only that, but he passes them. And then he goes on to win the race. And the audience just goes absolutely crazy. Like it was such a fun thing uh, to see. Well, one of the reasons why I love Peter's letter to this dispersed group of believers is that it's a lot like that video. It's a lot like a video in which you see a limping runner who all of a sudden just takes off and grows in spite of being resourceless in spite of being separated from one another, in spite of the fact that they were mocked by authorities and misunderstood by their neighbors, this is, a, this is a movement in which God grew it like wildfire. This was something that just completely took off in the ancient world. And this letter is a snapshot of that moment. So what I want us to do today is, like a coach analyzing a sports video, I want us to look at this passage today, and I want to see the ways in which the gospel just lit these, these sparks, these initiatives all over the place in this ancient community, and ways in which we ourselves can take those on. So I see in this passage six key gospel initiatives of the beauty and the power and the elegance and the wisdom and the love of the early church. And so, again, I want us to look at these things and ask ourselves, like, why in the world did this community grow? What was so different about them? And my goal, my hope, is that by the end of this, you would be able to see that God uses those who walk with a limp in order to heal this broken world around us. So let's look at these six things. Oh, and I know that six is, is uh, not the best biblical number, so if, if you want to look into this passage and find a seventh and really make this a full and, and complete thing, then uh, go for it. I, that can be your homework for the week, uh, to look in this passage and find more gospel initiatives here. So there's six that I want to point out to us, though. So let's turn to verse 8 of First uh, Peter chapter 3. Verse 8 uh, says this, All of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly and sisterly love, 
a tender heart, and a humble mind. So there's five items that Peter here gives us in this list. Now, as an English, uh, you know, Western speaker, this order might seem kind of uh, random and haphazard to you. Like, why in the world is, is brotherly love in the middle of that list? Uh, and humble mind, like, that's not the most impressive thing to, to end on, right? So it, it seems kind of weird to us. But the structure is very intentional. In fact, this is, this is what's called a chiastic structure. And this is a, a beautiful, ancient form of poetic writing that emphasizes the significance of the middle item. So th again, there's five items in this list. And watch and see how the first and the fifth, the second and the third sort of build up to the third, uh, the pinnacle of this. So unity of mind, and then the last item, the humble mind. What Peter is telling us here is, is he wants his community, he wants this, this community of, of early Christians to have um, minds that are humbly united with one another. In other words, he's saying, take the time to listen and to understand one another. Know each other's names, know each other's stories, get to know one another. Well, then do you see how the, the second and the third item pair with one another? Sympathy pairs with a tender heart. Sympathy is also a, a, a heart uh, engagement, right? Uh, so here, Peter is saying, I want you to be compassionate people. Your hearts should go out to one another. You should feel what other people feel in your community. You should cry when they cry. You should laugh when they laugh. You should love what they love. And then the pinnacle of this list is that third item there, that sibling love, brotherly and sisterly love, Philadelphos. Love one another as siblings, Peter is saying. Now, obviously, I, I know that siblings argue with one another. I get that. But when, you're, when siblings are loving each other, what does that look like? Well, they eat at the same table with one another. They share food with one another. They share stories of their days with one another. They do family chores shoulder to shoulder with one another. And they pick up where the other is lacking, right? When one is tired, the other one picks up the, the extra slack. Or when one sister sees another sister's uh, bicycle helmet lying in the grass, she goes and she picks it up, even though she knows that uh, uh, it doesn't belong to her. It's not her helmet, but she goes and she picks it up anyway, right? Siblings share resources with one another. And when siblings wrong one another, uh, they are quick to forgive one another. So it's absolutely wild to me is that in an age of sexism, in an age of ethnocentrism, in an age of classism, if you were to walk into one of these Christian communities, it would have been utter, utterly mind-blowing to you. You would have seen men and women being friends with one another. You would have seen Jews and Gentiles talking with one another. You would have seen the rich and the poor together. Together, you would have seen the Packers and the Vikings. You would have seen whites and blacks. You would have seen the Chinese and Japanese. You would have seen attorneys and, and, and bartenders. You would have, which that, that might not be such an unusual one to see, but anyway, you, you would have seen folks living in a diner, hanging out with people from the Phillips neighborhood. You would have seen millennials and boomers. You would have seen Republicans and Democrats all hanging out with one another, loving one another as brothers and sisters. That is the first gospel initiative that I see in this passage. That the church was a place where, where people experienced a radical love for one another. So secondly, let's look at verse 9. Peter says this, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, he says. So the second gospel initiative is this, the church was a place where habits of evil ceased. 
It's a place where habits of evil were broken. Now, we all know that the default for human behavior is to pay people back, right? To get people back. Everyone knows this from the youngest child to the oldest adult. You know, you push me, I'm going to push you back. You cut in front of me, you, you take something of mine, you say something against me or one of my friends, you watch out because I'm coming for you. But not the Christian. That's not how we are supposed to act. No, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I, brothers and sisters, are supposed to be breaking the chains of evil. We say no to the continuation of evil, and instead we respond by speaking out words of blessing. Words of blessing. Now, what do I mean by blessing? You know, that word is kind of thrown around quite a bit these days. What I don't mean is I don't mean happy thoughts or good vibes or some sort of uh, wishful, positive thinking that we just kind of lob out on people. No, that, that rings pretty hollow. No, what I mean is a true, biblical, Christian blessing. That is to call upon the author of life, the king of kings, the god of the cosmos, and to ask him to alter the spiritual realities of that around us for the purposes of healing and restoration. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Words of blessing to those around us, to break the chains of evil and to replace them with words of blessing. That's the second gospel initiative that I see in this passage. So let's look to verse 11. Uh, this is a quote from Psalm 34, uh, which was a psalm that we actually read just this last week in our morning prayer readings. Uh, but here, uh, Peter and the psalmist say this, Whoever desires to love life, let him seek peace and pursue it. What does that mean, to seek and to pursue peace? Well, I think what, it's, what is implied in this is that peace is actually really hard to find. You have to hunt for peace. Because the fact of the matter is peace is rare. Peace is elusive and peace is hidden. I love what N.T. What Wright says about this passage. He says, you should follow after peace in the way in which you would a dog that has panicked and run off in a busy town. Right? Have you lost a dog lately? You know, I hear my neighbors yelling for their dogs all the time, right? Well, that's how we should be pursuing peace. N.T. Wright continues. He says, don't expect peace to come to you when you whistle. No, you have to do the work. You have to learn a new habit. And what's that new habit, right? It's sniffing around and looking around where, where dogs like to hide. In other words, you have to be a peace hunter. And churches ought to be comprised of people who are, who are peace hunters, right? You and I, friends, we ought to be experts of, of finding peace, you know, in the midst of conflict and panic, which these days there is much, right? But you and I, brothers and sisters, we need to be able to put in the hard work to calm the nerves of those around us and to do the hard work to actually discover and find peace. Man, we could just do a whole other sermon right on that, couldn't we? Well, let's go to the fourth item. Verse 14. If you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. But have no fear of them. That is, have no fear of the world, nor be troubled. Here, Peter is telling these believers, you do not need to fear the world. Now, this isn't a denial of suffering. No, he knows that suffering is absolutely real, right? You know, especially for this collection of marginalized suffering people. Suffering is inevitable, right? So it's easy to fear those who are in authority over us. You know, at two other times in this book, both at the beginning and in the end, 
Peter reminds these, these um, beloved believers, he says, you are only suffering for a little while. You see, the early church recognized that suffering, worldly suffering, was a temporary thing. Yes, there is suffering. We do not deny that. We don't, we don't pretend that suffering doesn't exist, and we don't, we don't pretend that it doesn't wound us and hurt us and that it's difficult by any means. No, but we also recognize that the world does not have the final word. For those who are in Christ Jesus, we know how the story ends. That one day he will come back and make all things new. He will wipe away all the tears from all of our eyes and he will heal our land. And that should release us, right? That should release us from this heavy existential anxiety that is just oppressing our land right now, right? So that is the fourth gospel spark or the the fourth gospel initiative uh, that I see in this passage. That the church believed that suffering is unavoidable, unavoidable. However, we should have no fear because it's merely temporary because Christ is coming back. So what's next? What's the fifth item? Verse 15. In your hearts, Peter says, regard the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Oh, I just love that phrase, to make a defense. Uh, the Greek word for that is apologia, the word in which we get, you know, make an apology. Uh, and that's not to say, like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, you know, not that. No, it's, it's to make a defense for something, to present a case, to show the reasons why you believe something. A beautiful example of this, again, comes from the book of Acts. It's when the Apostle Paul, he, it's, it's towards the end of the book of Acts, and he, and he comes back to Jerusalem, he goes to the temple to worship, and people recognize him. And they see who he is, and they beat him, and they mock him, and they seek to kill him in that moment. But he finds a moment to, to get out, and he stands up in front of all of these people who are, who are seeking to kill him. And he says, hear the defense, that is the apologia, hear the defense that I now make before you. And then what Paul proceeds to do is he proceeds to tell them his story. He says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus. And then he goes on to tell them of the amazing education that re he received and the zeal that he had, the zeal that he had in, uh, in, in hunting down and persecuting Christians as a sign for his religious devotion to God. But then, one day, Jesus Christ got a hold of him. As Paul was going to find more Christians to persecute, Jesus Christ knocked him down off of his horse and said, why are you persecuting me? And then Jesus just loved on him and plugged him into the community of believers and forgave him all of his sins. So that Paul then would be such a master of grace, such a master of the gospel. And that was his story. That was the reason why he had a hope in Jesus Christ. And so that begs us to ask the question, you know, what's our story? What is the reason that we hope in Christ? Because, friends, the early church were masters at telling their stories. And that should be a reminder and an encouragement and a challenge to us as well. Why, what is it that the Lord has done in your life? Because, friends, you need to be ready to make a defense, to be able to state those reasons, to share the story for why it is that you hope in Jesus Christ. That is the fifth gospel initiative, that, the, that we are ready to tell our story. So lastly... Turn to verse 18, please. Here, Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And then jumping down to verse 21, 
Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having now been subjected to him. Now, obviously, this could be another sermon. It could be multiple sermons, right? But what I want to draw out from that, from this passage is this, that the early church was rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And for them, this wasn't just simply a mental ascent. This wasn't something that they just happened to believe in in their minds. No, this was something that they were participating in with all of their entire being. That's what baptism is, right? Baptism is a participation in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In baptism, which Peter says this in the passage, we are sacramentally, spiritually, and authentically bound to the death and victory of Christ. We join and participate with Jesus. And if it wasn't for this cataclysmic event of the resurrection of Jesus, then none of anything else that we've been talking about all all morning long would even be remarkably possible. Because, friends, Jesus isn't the centerpiece of Christianity just because he was crucified. No, he's a centerpiece of Christianity because he defeated sin, death, and evil once and for all. The power that was unleashed at his resurrection is what empowers and fuels every single one of these gospel initiatives that we've been talking about all morning long. The resurrection is it. The resurrection is life. The historical, real, true resurrection is what fuels all of this. So friends, when you go out the rest or when you go out this afternoon, when you go out the, the rest of this week, and you look and you see what's happening in the world, don't you for a second think that the church is in danger? Remember your brothers and sisters. Remember those who Peter was writing about, or writing to the, the dispersion many, many years ago. Look to our mothers and our fathers before us and the way in which they grew and they transformed the world. Because you and I, friends, we are recipients of the same exact inheritance. And those brothers and sisters before us, they now form a great cloud of witnesses who are cheering us on as we now run the race ourselves. We too can run in that same resurrection participation. So over the next few months, it's it's expected that our, our, our guidelines for gathering are gonna be loosened. And that we're going to be able to gather again in smaller groups, maybe groups of 10 or or 20 or 50. But we're going to be able to gather again. And my hope is that when we start to do so, there'll be some new people among us. That your friends, your neighbors will want to come and be a part of this. Because as they've been witnessing you, as they've been witnessing our, our people experience this awful global pandemic, they would know that something is different. That we are a community that is marked by radical love where evil is replaced by blessing, where where peace is hunted and pursued, where fear is eradicated, and where hope is pronounced and celebrated around us. And finally, that we are a community where real resurrection life is participated in and enjoined in. Friends, may this be true. May we, Restoration, be a community that as we emerge from this, we join in in the good work that God is doing around the world right now, and we are able to transform the world around us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
Amen.